Amen. Amen. I love you, sis. We will. God bless you, sis. You're done? Good. I was... No, I don't mean good. I meant good job. There, that's what I meant to say. Um, good morning. As you may remember, uh, we are going to be taking a break from our study in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, well, we have been, actually. We're, we're on the final teaching of a four-part series that uh, we started a few weeks back. Uh, we've joined together with other churches here in, in uh, our area as part of... I joined t- together with what's been called uh, Pastors United of Bay County. Uh, and we've done a series on unity, series on uh, a unity for the church. And that's across all the various barriers that have, have developed between believers historically across denominational barriers or demographic barriers. We have also been specifically looking at the racial divide that is glaring within the church in, in, in the United States. And we firmly believe, we have strong conviction that if we will attend to this as the church, as the kingdom of God, it will have profound impacts on the society in which we live, the larger society. So today is our final day in that series. Janelle did a great job last week going into Ephesians chapter 4 to remind us of our calling to be united as a church. Someone just said to me, you know, the, uh, the nut doesn't fall far from the tree, which I think is a compliment, right? Isn't that? But uh, either way, that's... Uh, there's, she, she did a great job. So today is also the day, they've already said that, but in case you weren't here during the announcements, I just want to say it again, is we're going to be going to uh, Sheffield Park at 4 o'clock, believing and trusting the Lord for good weather. All the churches are going to be participating in this, the churches that were part of this, uh, but other churches have said they're going to be there as well too, and we're just going to get together to, to sing worship songs, to glorify Jesus, and we're going to hear some short, you know, they, they say five minutes, they're giving... A bunch of pastors, five minutes. <laughs> uh, but uh, so, so uh, bring a chair. <laughs> but uh, no, you know, they've emphasized five minutes. So we're going to trust and believe that we can do this. We can do this. You can include three closings in five minutes. So uh, we're, uh, we're just going to get together as an ex- a public expression of our mutual faith and, and what it is that holds us all together, the bond of love that we have in Jesus Christ, because that's what it's all about. And that's what we're going to be demonstrating today. So uh, uh, as Janelle mentioned, I'm going to do a little painting. That's nothing new to you guys. Uh, but come on out, bring a chair. You might want to bring an umbrella. I have no idea what the weather's going to be. We're trusting the Lord for good weather. But no matter what, let's just be there, right? I mean, people show up to concerts and all kinds of stuff in all kinds of weather. We can do this to glorify Jesus, and uh, we'll get through it. Uh, so as I said today, I, when I say we'll get through it, it sounds like we'll get... Well, I didn't mean it the way that sounded. Uh, I meant it like we'll... we'll We'll persevere. There's the words that I was looking for. It's the same thing? Oh, well, either way. Let's move on, shall we? Uh, this is our final teaching in this series, uh, though I am not saying that this is the last time we're going to talk about unity. This is something that, that we've committed to. I believe this is a move of the Holy Spirit, and, and I'm excited to see where it goes uh, from here. But we've walked through the Bible in this series to highlight Scripture's the scripture's emphasis that it provides to the idea of God's people 
being united. We started in Genesis and we looked at how we as human beings are made in the image of one God, all of us together, bearing one God's image. And then we uh, looked at the Gospel of John where Jesus himself emphatically prayed that we as his followers would be one, something that was very important to him. His final commission to the the disciples that were following him, he used that time to pray that we would be one. And then last week we looked at the letter of Ephesians by the Apostle Paul, where he begged us to remember our calling to be unified uh, together. And so today we're going to be looking at Revelation, and we're going to be given a, a vision of unity. We've said all along through this series that uh, unity is a biblical mandate. The more that we've, I've taken the time to study this and look at this, it's really quite something. I mean, like all of the other mandates that we have within the, the scriptures, like repentance to righteousness, fidelity to God's will, unity among believers is a mandate. It is, it is something we are called to. It's not an option. It's not something that, hey, we can do that if it works out, if we feel like it or something. All of the things that I think about that the church spends so much time and energy promoting or pushing when there's sometimes very slender biblical evidence behind it. And here we've got mountains of scripture that call us as God's followers, as, as disciples of Jesus to be unified in him. And for whatever reason, oddly enough, we don't seem to talk about it much. And here's the thing. I believe that there is an enemy at work. And I think that, that there's a reason why it's one of the things that we seem to pay so little attention to. And yet it's glaring in front of us, glaringly in front of us. We're called to what we're called to and how far we are from it. I believe there's great power in the church when we become united in Jesus Christ. I believe our enemy has a great deal to fear from that. And there's a reason why it's such a struggle to get us together. This morning, we're going to be looking at the last book of the Bible and and I know that the book of Revelation can be really intimidating. Um, the imagery in that book is strange. It's full of monsters and wrath and unsettling stuff. Some read the book of Revelation as like a roadmap that's going to predict the events and the people involved in the final stages of the world. Others will read the Revelation as imagery that reveals the nature of this fallen world in, its, in any generation uh, most just avoid the book altogether. Uh, but no matter how a person understands the revelation, most interpretations will come back to this point in, in agreeing that it does picture what the world will look like when God has taken control of the whole thing, when he asserts his control, what the world looks like when God's kingdom arrives and sets all things right. So I think we can agree on that this morning, right? That that this book reveals the activity and the end result of the kingdom of God project in this world, right? Can we agree on that? Are we cool with that? Okay. Have you ever, we just talked about Fixer Upper, right? Have you watched that show? Have you ever seen those shows, the Fixer Upper shows? Who 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 has seen them? So some of you need a TV, but... Uh, the. the, the so you know, there's tons of those kinds. I mean, there's fixer upper. There's all kinds of those kinds of things out there. Beach re- renewal or whatever it is, and uh, and uh, clearly I don't watch them. But <laughs> but 
you know, we're trying to do this fixer-upper with, with Susie's place. And I've, I've thought about that as I've been out there at different times, thinking about those shows, that there's stuff that those shows leave out. Like, like they'll go into this place and they'll say, yeah, we're going to remove that wall. We're going to put French doors in. And then five minutes later, you cut to it and they're putting the final trim nail in. And you're like, that, that was easy. I could do that. But, you know, you get into this and this is a lot different from that. This is a lot of work. Uh, but, but in those shows, they always have the demo day, right? They always have the day when everybody goes in and we're going to rip all the cabinets out. We're going to, they go in and remove all the stuff that is poorly made or the rotten material. They get rid of that and they replace it then with a good structure, with stuff that's going to work. And, and at the end of the show, they always do those before and after pictures, right? They say, you know, this is the mess that it was. And here's what it's like now that we've gotten it all squared away. That is sort of what the book of Revelation, especially in chapter 21, is all about. In fact, if you've got a Bible and if you'd like to follow along, if you'll go to Revelation chapter 21, it's right near the end of the book, the second to the last chapter. When we get to Revelation chapter 21, uh, it's, it's like the end of the Fixer Upper show. We're, we're looking at the after picture. There's no more monsters. There's no more torments. There's no more disturbing imagery at, at this point. Demo day is over. The remodeling has been accomplished and we get the before and after view in this. That is in, in, in this chapter, chapter 21, the author who is John is going to describe the end state of God's kingdom, the, the kingdom project that has been ongoing since Jesus has been here. And he's going to reveal the goal, at least what our goal should be. Now, in this chapter, John goes into a lot of what isn't there in the, in the new world and what is there instead, the before and after kind of thing. In our modern, mostly evangelical church, the main emphasis of preaching has been about seeing to it that everybody gets saved and, and going to heaven when we die. Going to heaven when we die. And we're going to find in this chapter, however, that that message, if not inaccurate, is at least incomplete. Salvation is about more than going to heaven when we die. As a matter of fact, we're going to be presented with a picture that's completely the opposite of going to heaven in the end. Actually, we're going to see heaven coming down to earth in the ultimate restoration project that's ever going to take place. So if you're there in Revelation 21... We're going to begin starting in verse 1. He says, this is John speaking, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they'll be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear, every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. So John, in, in writing this revelation, he uses a lot of imagery um, that we don't want to assume is going to have like some literal fulfillment but the imagery is conveying a deeper meaning, a deeper truth about what it is that's taking place. John says that this new Jerusalem descends from heaven to earth. It, it, it isn't built on earth, it, it, nor do the inhabitants of earth go up into the city. No, the city comes down to earth. And this is explained as God making his home among his people. God coming to dwell 
with us, just as in Jesus, in the incarnation, God with us. It's that, it's that blending together of heaven and earth. Heaven and earth will one day be joined together completely. And this was accomplished first in Jesus. And, and the goal of all of it is community. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. In fact, later on, farther down in verse 7, he describes it as family. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. So there's this whole sense the new Jerusalem is a picture of the restored world and the community where God and humanity are reunited in this familial state as God originally intended. Because when we were created, that was the whole idea. He made us in his image to be as his family, representing him into the world. The end state brings us right back full circle to that place. And the word new is repeated over and over again in this section. There's a new heavens and a new earth and a new city and all things new. Like, like It's like the reveal in one of those shows, right? They're looking at it, this is the way it was, and now look, this is new, and, and that's new, and everybody's crying, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful. That's what this vision is doing here. John goes through listing everything that's, that's you know, new, but, but he's also listing the things that are gone as well. You know, the old heaven, the old earth is gone, the sea is gone, and all the beach bums and the surfers and the fishermen are like, ah, not cool, man. What? And so, but remember, so this is symbolism, right? So, I mean, you know, someone came and, and took exception to, to the decor we have here one time, uh, just, you know, pointing at the surfboard saying, you know, one day she's going to be gone, buddy. And I was like, oh, okay. Uh, I, I, I certainly don't believe that God would, would make something as beautiful and resource abundant as the, the sea go away. This is symbolic. The sea, we have to remember, we got to think scripturally. We've got to think like the Eastern mindset would. The sea in scripture is always symbolic of the chaos and the tumble of this broken world. The, the sea is a place, like in the book of Revelation, the sea is the place that all the monsters come from. <laughs> the beast rises up out of the sea. It's, it's always representative of that chaos and disorder of this broken world. So this is saying that all of that chaos and the terror of the former world is going to be gone. There's, there's no place for monsters to come from anymore. In fact, that goes along with what else is gone. No more tears, no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, as he said in verse 4. And we jump down to verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls containing the seven last plagues came to me and said, Come with me. I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So he took me in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Now, in the, in the chapter there, the angel goes on, or John goes on, describing this city, giving us the measurements and how many gates and all the characteristics. And I'm not going to take time to, to unpack all of that symbolism. But what's interesting to me is that this angel wants to show John something. What John hears about seeing is a bride, but what John sees is a city. And it's so interesting that when God puts all things right again, when it comes time for him to, to put it back together the way he originally intended, it's envisioned as a city. We don't normally think about cities like that. We don't think about cities as places, you know, you think of cities as a place where there's, you know, corruption and crime and violence. But of course, that's because this world is broken as it presently is. 
God intends, the idea behind this is that God intends for us to dwell in community together, eternal community. He doesn't, interestingly, he doesn't use an image of, you know, a beautiful uh, mountain or a windswept meadow or a beautiful beach where a person could live in isolation. He pictures a city, a cooperative of human beings, people in peaceful, harmonious, loving collaboration and cooperation together. All of this, everything about this is speaking of community, of people coming together. Since God's end goal is a unified community, then striving for ethnic and cultural unity needs to be our present priority. Since this is our future goal, this should be our present priority. You know, we don't want to brush past the city imagery too quickly. When God symbolizes a wedding of himself to the world, the bride is pictured as a cooperative of all kinds of people working together to establish God's priorities on this earth. That's how he pictures it. You know, we normally, when we use the imagery of, of the bride of Christ, we normally think in terms of the bride of Christ as being the church. Uh, and, and usually when we're reading that, we're usually thinking in terms of our church. It's our church, yeah, we're the bride of Christ. And certainly Paul uses that imagery in Second uh, Corinthians and in Ephesians. But John is expanding on that. Certainly the bride uh, is God's people, the church, but we see here that this is many people from many backgrounds and many ethnicities and experiences that form together, like you would see in a city, forming together uh, into God's collective. This is what it's going to be like when God's kingdom is fully revealed. But then it shows us what our present community, the church, is supposed to look like when we join together under God's reign. We're supposed to be, the church on earth is supposed to be a road sign pointing towards what's at the end of this road. We're supposed to be an an image of what it's supposed to be, a, a picture of God's plan. That means that we have to really work to change our thinking because cultural diversity is built into the Christian faith. You think about way back at the beginning. You go back to Acts chapter 15. They had the very first church council. The leaders of the church got together trying to figure out what to do with the fact that, you know, we started as this Jewish movement and now there's all these Gentiles coming in. What do we do with these Gentiles? Do they got to become Jewish like us? Remember, does anybody remember what I'm talking about? Take my word for it or go read it better yet. Acts chapter 15. They're, they're discussing this. What, so should they start obeying the Jewish laws? Do we need them to, to, you know, uh, conform to circumcision and Sabbath keeping and all the dietary laws and all of these things? Well, they came to the conclusion, if you read that book, that they couldn't do that. That, that that wasn't where the spirit was leading them in that. They didn't have to enter into Jewish culture. They didn't have to adopt Jewish uh, practices or norms. And so that meant that these new converts had to figure out a Gentile way of being a Christian. And it tells us clearly then that there is no one culture that owns the Christian faith. There is no one culture that rightly represents it while the others don't. As Pastor Jesse Nelson said last week in his sermon in the Unity series, we can't be united with one another if we think we're better than one another. There is no one culture that has a corner on the Christian expression. 
God's city is made up of many cultures and ethnicities and nationalities and expressions with our commonality being Jesus. Well, why would you say that? How can you get to that point? What do you mean by all the different cultures and ethnicities? I'm glad you asked. Let's keep reading here. Uh, if you're still there in Revelation 21, let's jump down to verse 22. It says, uh, I... There it is. Thank you. Uh, Who are you thinking? I'm thinking this, I guess. I saw no temple in the city for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon for the glory of God illuminates the city and the Lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light and the kings of the world, the kings, the representatives of their various culture will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of the day because there is no night there. And all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices. Battery. Can I? I'm on again, but it's blinking at me saying that I'm here, but just barely. professional church. <laughs> All right. Uh, anybody remember where we were? The nations will walk in its light. Oh, uh, verse 27. Did I get? Yeah. Nothing evil uh, will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, you know, n- nobody's going to be able to fake it in this. You're not going to be able to, you know, worship your bank account or your car and think that you're going to be able to pull this off or be dishonest before God. It's only those who, however imperfectly, have committed their hearts and lives to Jesus, whose names are included in that. So the city that John sees, it has no temple and there's no need for it because God and the Lamb are present with them. That was the whole temple system was meant to represent something that was out of sight, out of reach, not any longer. But it's also a reminder about where buildings and edifices should rank in our priorities as a church. But this also reminds us that there is no need for any sort of mediator anymore. No temple, no priests. We don't need those things. Christ is with us and we are his priests, which is actually a present reality right now. This is what Peter tells us in Second Peter to remind us that we are a royal priesthood. The city has no need for sun or moon. Notice it doesn't say that there isn't one, just has no need for that. Jesus lights the whole thing up and Considering the symbolism of this again, and again, this is, this is rich symbolic language, but we remember what light is, especially in its, in its scriptural context. It always speaks of, of understanding, but it also speaks of security. We have nothing to fear, uh, in Christ, in this city of God. In this vision, the nations come to the city and they're bringing their glory and honor and this multinational, multi-ethnic, multicultural people of God 
gather there. And most impactful of all to me is that the gates will never be closed. Open gates, plenty of light. This is telling us something as we read this. And I believe that we represent the future hope of the gospel when we renounce our fear of the other, those who are different from us, our fear of the other who are part of this city of God, who are part of this community that God's forming. Walled cities and gates, those were a normal part of the ancient world. And they served a very important purpose in the ancient world. The walls, specifically the gates, had the purpose of making sure that that wanted people were in and unwanted people were kept out. And there were a variety of reasons why they would have needed that. But in God's city, and remember, remember the context of this. We're talking about this community uh, of God that God is building together. These people who have put their faith in Jesus in God's city. There, there is no us versus them, or at least there shouldn't be. Another detail that we have to ponder in verse 26 is where it says all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. That is really intentional language in that and really alarming when you think about who the author is because John is an Israelite. He grew up as a Jewish person, as a person who recognized himself to be a part of God's chosen people. All the other nations were out of sync with God. For, for John, a good Israelite, to refer to the other cultures and customs as glorious, that's noteworthy. Something's going on in this. It's telling us that no more is there ever going to be any of this division between us and them, any more of this culture war that we see all the time. No longer is anyone going to say our culture and our people are more godly than yours. In light of that future, why why would we as the church invest that kind of time in promoting some sort of culture war or political divide? between the people of God. Respect and honor and appreciation for all ethnicities and cultures is what will represent God's redeemed people when we reach the end goal. So is it our priority today? I mean, can we honestly look at our own heart and think about our experience in the church? Hey, look, I'm going to be the first one here to raise his hand and say, I'm almost 60 years old, and I'm just now starting to pay attention to this. If this is our end goal, then what is our priority today? I think that, I think that it's incumbent on us, especially, and I can only speak to the culture that I live in, to American culture, it's incumbent on us to learn to humbly appreciate and respect other expressions of Christianity that we encounter. And that's my last point. I believe that we represent the future hope of the gospel when we learn to celebrate the beauty and the wonder of all of our ethnicities and distinct and diverse expressions of our faith. To learn to appreciate those things. And believe me, listen, we're part of, I'm part of Pastors United. I'm gathering with guys that, you know, 
what, I don't mean to throw numbers around like this all the time. You know, I'm nearly 60. I've been a pastor 25 years. I'm not trying to do that, but I'm just saying it's to my shame in all honesty that I'm just now getting to know some of these guys who've been fellow pastors and leaders and men and women who've been ministering here for all this time. And, and look, there's culture shock. I'm not going to deny that. There's times, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm gathering to pray with, with people and, you know, I get uncomfortable because it's not the way I normally pray. You know, the volume raises and all kinds of things are happening. And for me, there's trigger points where, you know, my experience is in the crazy church and all of that factors in. But as I'm there, all I can think is, Lord, I want to learn to appreciate, to respect, to honor and find the value and how I can embrace and enter into the value of the various expressions of worship. Because that's what we're called to. Can we take the time to learn and listen to our fellow Christians' experience without assuming our own rightness or superiority? I mean, you know, just to be honest, there have been times I've entered into a conversation with people, my friends, and and we'll talk about some of the things that we're discovering and learning as we're developing these relationships. And, and I can't tell you how often it immediately goes to qualifications on political issues. Instead of us being able to just appreciate the differences that are there and the beauty of that, we've got to immediately go to our political divides and say, yes, but I still believe this. You know what I believe? I believe that Jesus Christ hung on a cross for you and I. And that all of those political things are so tertiary that they'll be blown away like autumn leaves in the wind one day when Jesus returns and reveals the truth of what it is that he's been building in his kingdom. We need to to loosen our grip on those things, guys. Loosen it up a little bit. Maybe raise those hands in, in praise. I'm not one of those guys that does that, but I'm willing to. I'm willing to. Well, Rob, here's the thing. We get to heaven and... <laughs> This kingdom things appears. We're all going to be the same anyway. You know, all of those differences will disappear because we'll all just be the same. You know, I'm not so sure of that because there's nothing in this vision that suggests that all people entering the city are going to lose their cultural identities when they come into the city. In fact, their uniqueness is celebrated and referred to as glory. God never seems intent on trying to erase our cultural identities or just flatten us out into some one size, one color fits all. I've often heard people say, and this is where, you know, if you're going to get mad and leave, probably should do it now. (laughs) I've often heard people say, always people with my skin color say things like, you know, I don't see color. And it's offered as an attempt to try to explain, you know, to deny any uh, racism on their part. And I, listen, I think that a person means well when they say that, when they're, when they're trying to say, you know, I don't see color. You know, there's these issues going on, but, you know, I just don't see color. We're just, we're just people. But I've cautioned us here before from, from this platform, uh, not, not to say things like that. We've got to think that through. And there's a reason why it's always people, that have my skin color that say that. Um, because, listen, we've got to listen to what it is. We've got to hear what's being said in that. To, to deny seeing color, well, that's the same as to deny seeing the person. And it comes off to me anyway as denigrating no matter what, no matter how well-intentioned it might be. 
I, I don't see color. I just don't see color can sound like, well, I don't see you. Or, or I'll just pretend that, you know, you're white like me and, and everything should be fine. It's like saying, I don't see your history. I don't see your uniqueness. I don't see your contribution to the human kaleidoscope. It's like saying, I don't see your value. It makes it sound like when we say, I don't see color, it makes it sound like color is a bad thing. I heard N.T. Wright talking on this topic once, and he said, to say, I don't see color is sort of saying, I'm elevating you to the status of honorary white person, which carries an assumption of superiority. Look, okay, so I'm an artist. Well, are you, Rob? Well, I mean, no, I mean, maybe. I, I'm interested in painting stuff. I, I do art. I, I, I'll, I, I use a lot of different mediums. I do digital art. I do uh, practical art. I, I paint with acrylics and oils and all kinds of different subject matters. And if I were to, to show somebody the art that I'd just done, maybe it's a seascape. I've done a painting of a seascape. And I, and I say, what do you think of the seascape I painted? And the person says to me, you know what? I don't see seascapes or anything like that. I just see art. That's just art to me. I, I don't even really think about it. Honestly, I, I think I'd be a little hurt by that. And, and I wonder how God feels when we're so dismissive of his infinite creativity in the vast, dazzling array of humans that he made in his image. I think that, that we need to, to learn to, and it's a process. It's a process. This isn't, and, and I hope... What I'm saying here doesn't come across as condemning. This is a process. I'm learning. And I think that, that it's incumbent on us as God's people to, to take this journey and to learn. To learn to delight in the diversity of ethnicities and cultures and experiences and expressions and perspectives. Because God clearly does when we look at what the end picture of this is going to be. Listen, we know this. We know this. I don't, you don't have to have me explain this to you. You know this, that any intolerance or bigotry or assumed superiority of one over the other is wildly incompatible with God, what God describes as his intent for us in, in the gospel, what God's intent for us as the church is. The gates are wide open in the city of God. There is no more night. There is nothing to be afraid of in God's city, among God's people. There is nothing to be afraid of from other cultures because in Christ, no one is a foreigner anymore. So with this in view, let's allow God to shape our lives and our community into reflections of this hope, to be the road signs we were meant to be to show what it's like on earth when it is as it is in heaven. Let's attend to what gives life, what promotes Christ's life, to what draws us together and unites us in Christ. Let's ask God to to grow in us an appreciation for the diversity of his creation, the people that are made in his image. Let's commit to looking for Christ in one another, not focusing in on all the things that divide us, but looking for Christ in whom we are and will be eternally united. Let's, let's make it a determination 
not to, to allow the boundaries and the barriers that we have put up, whether that's doctrinal or theological or praxis or racial or cultural or, or uh, uh, generational. Let's not allow those things to be the very first things we see. Let's allow God to raise us above those walls, to see past it, to the human being made in the image of God whom Christ has redeemed. Let's remember Jesus' prayer that we be one and let's attend to our calling as one family of God to share his love into this world. How will the world believe that God loves them unconditionally if we can't love one another? And let's not forget that while this world is a difficult place and while there is plenty of chaos to go around, Weeping will endure for the night of this fallen world, but there is joy coming in the morning. And as he promised us, one day all the broken structures of this rotted place will be taken out. All that is fallen and dangerous will be torn up and removed. And God's going to restore it to its original good. One day we will awaken and find we're out of the reach of death and pain and tears. All of the old things will have been passed away and all things will be made new. And I can't wait for that day. But, oh, church, you can reflect it now into this world. You can show this world something bright on the horizon. You just have to embrace that calling in him. Right on? on. All right, very cool. Lord, make us one. We pray, Father, for this meeting that's going to be taking place today. Lord, you are the God of all creation, and so we we put the weather in your hands. And we know, Lord, that we've been in a drought, so far be it from us to want to harm anyone else, but we do ask for space today, whatever that looks like, to be able to to be a, a body of Christ, of many believers united in our trust and faith in you in our hope for this good ending ahead of us. So work in our hearts, Lord, as we've looked at this. Continue to, to, to plow up the fallow ground, Lord. Because you know us. You know us. It's so easy for us to fall into our patterns that make us comfortable. But you know also, Lord, the end from the beginning. And you know where those patterns sometimes can lead to. And the damage that we can do without even realizing it because we haven't paid attention to your purpose and your calling on our life. So stir up our hearts to follow you wholeheartedly. Awaken our minds to perceive more clearly and to appreciate all that you're doing in this world, all that you've made that's beautiful, all the people who are called by your name with whom we are family. Awaken us to that reality, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.